Maybe I won't say be seated. Maybe we should have you do hand motions and jump around. <laughs> Keep you very engaged. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that you speak to us through it. Now we ask that you would imprint upon our souls uh, the fact that we belong to Christ, that we belong to you, Father, and that suffering even becomes an emblem of our sonship, of your lordship, your loving lordship over our lives. God, help us as we walk through your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We recently bought a new old school top-loading washing machine. I did all of this research on it, spent time looking at the reviews, and then it arrived, and it was defective. <laughs> Wouldn't you know? So I sent it back, I, I ended up calling the store, uh, talked to the manufacturer. It took me about two hours or so, and I've got six phone numbers that I need to track down. Everyone kept referring me to another number. And as my frustration was welling up inside of me, and I felt like I was suffering, dealing with this defective washing machine, I stepped back and I thought, oh my, I'm in danger of becoming a first world problem meme, you know? <laughs> Along with the church air conditioning isn't working strong enough today, or there's too much goat cheese on my salad. You see, living where and when we get to live, friends, and you know this, is terrific. The drought and insanely high gas prices notwithstanding. Yet we too, even here, finite and fragile like the rest of humanity, we are also subject to accidents and disease and even natural disasters, and you know this. But our text is not simply about suffering because we're human, though it prepares us indeed for all suffering, but it's about suffering in particular because we are followers of Jesus. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, for allegiance to him, then because of that you are blessed. So this passage helps us to deal with the fact that the name of Jesus sometimes stirs up the fire as much as it puts the fire out. Now, Peter has articulated extraordinary privileges for the believer. All the way back in chapter 1 on Easter Sunday, we looked at the fact that we have been born again to a living hope, a hope that will not fade away, that, that we have an inheritance that is indescribably spectacular, waiting for heaven in heaven for us. We are heading toward the renewal of all things. And that includes even our bodies. And we will be in full communion with God and His people in a new heavens and new earth where there will be no sorrow and no tears and no funerals. And so we hear those blessings and then we come to the latter part of the letter where Peter talks about suffering over and over and over again, we've been hearing about it over the last few weeks. And so the question is, how do we square these astonishing blessings with suffering? You see, Peter is addressing Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and they are, you could say, the church under attack. And this speaks to us in our day. 
The pastor Sinclair Ferguson has asked of ministers in training, are your churches making disciples who could endure persecution? Well, this passage prepares us to say yes, by God's grace, we will endure. And it's important as we walk through this to remember that our suffering for Christ, our suffering for Christ finds its meaning and purpose in Christ's suffering for us. And so there are three strong verbs. There, there are more than three, but we're going to look at three that frame this passage. They really stand out. And it's expect to suffer, rejoice through your suffering, and entrust your souls to a faithful creator or your faithful creator. Well, first, expect suffering. Notice that as Peter writes this letter, as he wrote it to them, he is brimming with sweet tenderness toward them. He calls them beloved. The Greek word is from agape, agapoi, meaning God's loved ones, dear friends. I am going to tell you some tough words, but it's because I love you, but God loves you so much more. And here's what I have to tell you. He says, don't be shocked when ordeals hit you like a house fire as though something strange is happening to you. See, though we often as Americans think otherwise, I certainly do, suffering is not foreign or alien to Christian experience. But rather, we are actually to expect suffering because we've seen earlier in the letter that we are what's called resident aliens. We are here in this world, but we belong to the age to come. We belong to Christ. We are resident aliens in a world that doesn't like Jesus' claims about himself. Now again, we will experience in this life, if we live long enough, we will experience the overwhelming hardship that comes from the fall. If you live long enough, and some of you know this in your own experience or the experience of loved ones further down the road of life, if you live long enough, your body will eventually betray you. As one senior Christian said, growing older is not for wimps. And there, <laughs> there's some amens on that one, I know. But Peter reminds us that Christians also face trials not only because of the fall, but actually because of redemption. You see, some people would, would actually rather kill than be slain by the truth of Jesus and raised a new life in him. They are so entrenched in their rejection of him that it can make them pretty hostile to the Christian message and those who carry it. We are living in a time, and this has been for a while, in which so many folks say, you know, spirituality, that's great. I'm all in. Even God is good as long as I get to define him, her, or it as I like. But as soon as you start talking about Jesus as Savior and King and that he made those claims, folks will say, I am not into that. <laughs> and that's putting it mildly. 
And so Peter is saying that suffering is not the exception to the rule. It is normative for us. So our experience in many ways in America has been the anomaly. We can think about Christians around the world and throughout time who have been jailed and are even now being killed for their faith, who are losing their jobs because of their faith. And yet the tide could be turning here in our country where we have so enjoyed religious freedoms. George Yancey is a sociologist at Baylor University, and he has coined the term Christianophobia. Christianophobia. In other words, uh, people coming up with, with policies and ways of doing things that, that actually discriminate against Christian belief. And there's an example of this over, uh, from the last few months, or there are more than a few. But there's a, a church in downtown Portland, which is very involved right in the heart of Portland uh, in caring for folks that are struggling. They, they have church offices there. They have their church worship center there. But on a city block, they have a number of other things. It, they have a community-oriented coffee shop. And then next door to that, they have an art studio. And then they have a, a building that's called First Image, and it's a local crisis pregnancy center, a post-abortion care ministry. And they're not politically active. What they do is they pass out food and clothes, and they give counsel. Well, after the recent Supreme Court decision, uh, the windows of all of those buildings on that um, street in downtown Portland, they were all shattered. Uh, red graffiti was put all over their buildings. And someone said that um, this vile graffiti was aimed specifically at Christians. There were things that certainly I couldn't share with you here in church. And then that brings to mind 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised. Don't be shocked if the world hates you. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. And that isn't always only um, you know, being killed for your faith, though it entails that for Christians else in other places. But it can also be verbal derision. It's becoming increasingly the case that you can get whacked if you don't agree with what the culture prizes and wants and celebrates. I know a Christian who initiated a conversation with, with a non-believer uh, recently about just sort of the, the next iteration in the sexual revolution, and it was just sending an article, um, actually a secular article, uh, and, you know, it was one of these, hey, let's just talk about this, let's reason together on this. And the response was this, you are spreading hate speech, um, this is uh, religious bigotry, the article didn't mention religion at all, it had to do with athletics actually, and um, the person kept ramping that up and saying, I'm not okay with the hate that you are spreading. And then the Christian responded, can we dialogue? Is there a place just to have a conversation? And the response came back again, you are spreading bigotry and that is not okay. You see, that kind of thing in our culture is increasing. And Peter says, do not be shocked. Don't be unduly alarmed when that happens. And this believer actually wasn't. 
Peter says, it's not as though something strange or alien is happening to you. Those kinds of conversations are actually more reflective of what Peter is saying to these first century Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. And this could be more normative for our experience as resident aliens in the coming years, friends. So don't be surprised. It's a good reminder for me and for you. But it's more than that. We are to rejoice through our sufferings. You see, when trials come our way, the natural thing to do for us, for me, is to worry, to complain, frankly, to get depressed. But Peter says, instead of being thrown off balance, look at verse 13 again, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that... Here's the goal where it's going, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, how in the world do we do this? And again, I know that some of you are are going through or you perhaps will face some really intense trials. So how can we rejoice? Well, this is why. We don't say about those experiences in and of themselves that they're fun It's not that at all. It's that God is repurposing what they're about. We rejoice because our trials confirm our union with Jesus, whose life was one long, extensive test. And so when you and I suffer, especially for our Christian faith, it is like a stamp in which God is showing and saying to us, you belong to me. And if the perfect Son of God had to walk the road of rejection on His way to glory, then we who are imperfect can't expect anything less. And it's important to note that our suffering for Christ is always to be rooted in His suffering for us. You see, His wounds have ransomed us from our futile ways. We heard that again in the service today. His blood wipes away our wrongdoing. And so it's only His suffering and only His cross that saves. But, as we carry our crosses, especially the cross of of rejection, of derision, of graffiti, literal or verbal, Peter is saying we are sanctified, made more like Jesus as we carry our crosses. The theologian Ed Clowney once said, made righteous by Jesus, we suffer as the righteous with Jesus. His suffering makes us righteous and therefore we then suffer with him. In fact, Paul in Romans 8 says we have fellowship in Christ's suffering as we look forward to glory. And Peter says here, be glad when you face trials. Again, not because they are pleasant, but because God wants to strengthen your faith through them. Now this is one of those sort of ahas as I was working on this this week. You know, I think when people really struggle in their Christian faith, and and sadly, and I've known people like this, and you probably have too, there are a lot of books written about it, really the hardest thing to defend in the Christian faith is probably the problem of suffering. 
it, it is people really, really wondering, um, and, and it, we understand this, where is a good God in the midst of this terrible experience? And so suffering may be the main reason that people lose their faith. But what Peter is saying, and this sounds scandalous to our American ears, he is saying suffering should actually be what most strengthens your faith. You see, what happens that, is that when we go through suffering, it is so easy to shift our paradigm by pushing the cross outside of our paradigm, right? We have this way of understanding God, and we don't put suffering within that, but Peter says you need to put the cross right back in the middle of your paradigm. And then, as hard as it is, you will begin to make more sense of suffering. Now, I want to approach this heavy theme in a lighthearted way for a moment. Um, I heard an illustration this week, um, and it's about a campus pastor who, who tells a story of a college guy that who, he, he would date a girl, and they'd have a relationship, and then they'd break up, and then inevitably she would date another guy for like four or five dates, and then she would marry that next guy after she dated him. And this happened over and over again. The guy said, seriously, this is a real story. So the college kid with a sense of humor began to call himself the clarifier. <laughs> I clarify things for these women. <laughs> Peter saying, suffering is a clarifier. It clarifies what or whom we are trusting. See, the letter here says that God is purifying us and he is making our faith more like gold and less like fool's gold. He is showing us that, that we so often run out of our own resources, we can't ultimately rely on ourselves. Suffering shows us how much we need him. You know, it was shocking to all of us just a few months ago when these very close to here, over on the ridge, beautiful homes uh, in Laguna Niguel, I guess Aliso, um, on the trail there that many of us walk all the time, uh, how those beautiful homes that are s seemingly impervious to destruction within a matter of hours were consumed in flames. And when those kinds of things happen, as horrific, and they are horrific, as horrific as they are, what Peter is saying is that they can show us also that we are so fragile and finite in that our money and all the things that we try to buffer ourselves with here in this beautiful place, those things will not sustain us. You see, suffering can be dreadful, yet it can turn our gaze to Jesus and our un fading life in him. You see, Jesus identified with us in his suffering, and so we identify with him in our suffering. And when we go through trials, our link to the one who persevered for us is strengthened. Now, Peter makes an interesting qualification here. He says it's commendable to suffer for Christ, but we're not to suffer for wrongdoing. 
In other words, Christians, don't be knuckleheads. <laughs> and if you are, don't, don't blame your suffering in that case on your Christianity. He's saying don't use Christianity as, as a cover for being obnoxious and relating in ways that bring backlash against your style of talking to people. He says don't meddle. Don't overly involve yourselves in all the things that are um, wrong in the world. Don't be a gossip, in other words. And then he says judgment begins with the household of God. Let God judge the world. Let Christians deal with themselves, ourselves. And part of what we have to deal with is the way that we suffer before a watching world. Not complaining, but rejoicing. And friends, the other remarkable thing about this portion of the letter is that Peter wrote this. It was Peter who wrote this. Focusing so much on Christ's suffering. Now, why is this remarkable? Well, because in Mark's gospel, and we recently looked at Mark, it, the turning point is Jesus, or rather Peter, saying to Jesus that he is the Son of Man. He is the great glorious figure of the Old Testament who has come to bring in the kingdom of God, to show the glory of God. And then Jesus says to Peter, and that Son of Man must be betrayed. He will suffer. He will be crucified, dead, and buried. And what does Peter say? Peter says, absolutely no way. That is not the plan for the Son of Man. There is no glory in that. You will not suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you are following the agenda of Satan. I must suffer. Well, Peter came to learn after the resurrection that it was not only Jesus, but that he himself, and that we also must suffer. And so here you had Peter saying, no way, you can't suffer. And yet we're told by all the church fathers, unanimously, that Peter must have died in Rome by crucifixion. That he followed the pattern of his Savior. What an amazing work of God in his life. And God wants to work that way in our lives. You see, in this passage, we are shown that suffering is like a sign from heaven. It is, it is evidence that the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead rests upon you and me and is preparing us to suffer. You know, the, the discipline or the, the study of apologetics, in other words, reasons for the faith, we often in that deal with the question, why does God allow suffering? Where is glory in suffering? But Peter turns it all on its head. He says, actually, it's in suffering, the suffering of the Messiah, and in the suffering of his people, that God's glory is most shown. Now friends, I tell you that not fully believing that in my heart because it's so hard to buy, but that's exactly what Peter is saying. And so people say God must not be there in this terrible tragedy. This is saying God is most there in that tragedy. He is most there. 
Now, some of this is very much oriented to the future. We rejoice now because we know that we will rejoice with unbridled ecstasy when Jesus Christ is revealed. However, there are times where we get to see some of the purpose of our suffering now. I've been able to experience a glimpse of that recently. As most of you know, I've got a lifelong kidney disease that I'm dealing with, and uh, you know we're starting to ramp up what that means, dealing with the doctors and hospitals and so forth. And I was recently connected with a young man um, who is going through his own trial um, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, he is a person who was blazing his trail in school and sports and in college and doing really well um, by all accounts. And then he was hit with a, a devastating, surprising coronary condition that he didn't see coming, no one saw coming. Well, uh, it was suggested that I reached out, and we did. We had a very um, a wonderful conversation, and, and I, he blessed me as much as I blessed him. We talked for about 80 minutes. And as he was talking about his trials and, and some of the wounds that he has experienced, we, we talked about this. And you know, one of the things I said, first of all, is this really stinks. I mean, life isn't supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be able to go through things and enjoy life, but we live in a very fallen world. But then I was able to say, yet we can meet together at the foot of the cross. And I have these wounds in my life so I can minister to you and your wounds, but most importantly, we share in the wounds of Jesus. And there we find the grace of God. There we are brought to the ends of ourselves. There we run out of our resources and find our sufficiency in Him. There we experience the power of God in trial and loss. And Christ lovingly meets us in those things. And so, dear friends, I want you to know that no matter what you go through, especially when people deride you for your belief in Christ, Jesus has got you. He owns you. You belong to him. And when the world excludes and derides you, what's actually happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain, is that Christ is embracing and delighting in you. You see, the the Peter who was transformed by the risen Christ, he could say, we will be so overwhelmingly happy when Christ is unveiled that the present trials we experience will make sense. And that, that seems really hard to say, but they will make sense, just like the nails in his feet and his hands now make sense on this side of the resurrection. Some of you know the powerful words from C.S. Lewis who said about trials and heartache. He said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backward and turn even that agony into a glory. Jesus will turn your agony into a glory. And so because of him and in him, we rejoice in our suffering. And last, we entrust our souls to our faithful creator. Look at verse 19. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is committing your souls, giving over yourselves to your God who made you. Now, during VBS, it, it was a joy for Liz and me to, to teach the kids two of the days. And Liz and I were um, in a tent that was supposed to be Abraham's tent, and the kids kept calling it a fort, which was fine. And, and Liz was saying to them, she was sitting there, and I was getting my iPhone, trying to crawl into the tent and trying to record it. And she said, you know, that God made you. God made you in his image. Uh, to think thoughts and to have responsibilities. And then one very dear, thoughtful kid, and you can hear it in the recording, well, who made himself? <laughs> when she turned to Pastor Tom and said, Pastor Tom, can you answer that? At that point, the, the camera turned off because <laughs> I had to get brace myself to really um, try to answer that. Now, I didn't put it quite in these words, but that was a really crucial question, and here's the answer. You see, God isn't the kind of being who needs to be created, and that's so wonderful. He's not one cause in a long chain of causes, but he's the one who is self-existent. He is the one who always was. And so, friends, you and your parents and grandparents and your children and grandchildren, you are all finite, but God is infinite. He is dependent on no one. And therefore, therefore, we can depend on him because he always has been and always will be for us. And the creator that we trust is faithful. Your trials, therefore, are not ultimately random and you see, if God has nothing to do with our tragedies, then we have no hope, we have no way of putting anything together, but God is orchestrating everything toward our eternal benefit and his beautiful glory. Romans 8 says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And so according to his loving plan, he will orchestrate and tie everything together and our tears will be turned to gladness and even laughter and you know I'm going to have to remember that when I'm in the hospital for at least two weeks down the road it sounds like or I have tubes permanently inserted in my stomach I don't want to do that but when that happens I will have to remind myself heaven will work this agony into a glory. You may have heard of Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna and its most famous martyr. Uh, he was a disciple of um, the disciple John. And the Roman Empire was not happy with his preaching Christ. And it wasn't simply that they vandalized his home. Uh, we don't know about that, but they did far worse. They threatened him, and they told him, you have to swear by Caesar. And if you don't do that, if you don't pay your allegiance to Caesar, sure, you can have your private religion, I'm sure they said, right? And we've, we're hearing that nowadays. You can have your private beliefs, but you have to swear to Caesar. And Polycarp would not. 
And so they put him on a stake and lit a fire underneath him, and they gave him a chance to recant. All you have to do is swear by Caesar. And Polycarp so famously said, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? My dear friends, we're more than likely not going to go through that kind of suffering, but I want you to know that the same God who was with Polycarp is with you, the same creator to whom Peter, who was crucified, entrusted himself, that creator is with you. Last weekend, I was uh, blessed to officiate a wedding for a young woman who grew up in this church. And it made me think about the language of this pastor, or, or of this passage. Um, you know, at a wedding, there's that phrase that I say as a minister, an officiant, who gives this woman to be married to this man, or who entrusts this woman to be married to this man. And I was, as I, you know, led the, count, the counseling and got to know the couple better and better, uh, what I heard from this man and what I saw about it was his character and his affirmation of Jesus, um, I felt really, really good about his bride's dedication to him. So when I asked who entrusts this woman to be married to this man, we all sense she's being entrusted to a good and faithful guy. Well, take that times a thousand, times a million. Friends, you are entrusting yourselves to your creator who needed no one to create him, who is a good God, a good God. He is trustworthy and reliable and faithful. He won't fail you and me. He loves you. And he has proven his love through the wounds of his son, and in our wounds we meet him there. And so we need this gospel when we face car wrecks, when our money runs out, when our loved ones are sick. And most to this text, when we are insulted, even persecuted for the name of Jesus, and it will happen, but your Creator will not let you go. He will not let you down. And Jesus and His eternal joy is proof of that love. And trust yourselves to your faithful Creator. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of this passage. We thank you that they are true in the life, the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus. It would be our way to say glory comes simply through glory and a smooth sailing kind of life. But God, you have ordained in the mystery of your hidden will that glory goes through the route of suffering. And in that suffering, Father, we come to the ends of ourselves. We, we realize that the houses, the money, the health, the youthfulness, all these things that we rely on can be stripped from us like the speed of a house fire. And God, we pray that when trials come, especially when we are insulted for your name, uh, 
when people roll their eyes at us or do worse, when they spray graffiti on buildings that represent you and gospel ministry. God, when those things happen, help us not to be shocked or angry, but to rejoice because in that somehow we are sharing in the very suffering of Jesus and understanding his suffering for us. And so we pray now that you would use this supper to strengthen us in the grace of Jesus. Thank you that we get to eat and to drink and to experience in a very real way what Jesus did for us. And help us to rejoice in our sufferings now, knowing that we will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that there will be unbridled joy and only happiness and no more sorrow. And so, God, we pray, I pray for those today who are hurting, that they, that we would all know that that glory that we have in Christ will work in reverse, turning our agony into an ecstasy. And God, I pray that we would have a glimpse of that now, even here at this meal. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.